Hello, and welcome to the Attributive Security Podcast, where we discuss and share ideas around perennial, topical, and emerging information security issues. Keep listening for insights into risk management and, in particular, risk ownership. My name is Martin, and today Maurice and I will be joined for the first time by a guest. We've done three episodes of this podcast now, and the intention was always to mimic a natural conversation in a social setting. Of course, we do make some accommodations for our listeners, but we don't really want to be presenting information or viewpoints directly in a lecture style. So continuing in that vein, uh, we have a guest this week, but don't expect us to be following a, an interview style. We're still going to be uh, very conversational. This week we have Bill Schultz on our show. He's an enterprise security architect and uh, we're delighted he's on our show today. I met Bill uh, seven years ago at COSAC. We both introduced each other to the long hours until 4 or 5 a.m. discussing many, many topics at COSAC in the bar or outside. It's always a delight to have him. I first met our guest about four years ago and instantly he was clearly somebody who was going to be a, a big influence and teacher. Um, I've learned a lot from him over the years. The first point was really he made quantitative risk analysis actually sound feasible in cyber. Up until that point, a lot of people, I think, had been talking about it, but it just seemed so uh, far-fetched, really, to actually do it. And I think Bill really made it seem meaningful. And I think, at least in a meaningful sense, he, he introduced me to FAIR as well. But also, he's been a great influence on my thinking on subjects such as business-driven security, security architecture, selection of use of security frameworks, and as, as a SABSA master, um, has taught me a lot about SABSA as well. So he's a, a SABSA chartered master, and I would say a practitioner of the first order. Today, our guest is Bill Schultz. Well, Bill, as you know, I uh, in the previous session, Martin and I had there on uh, compliance, I uh, invited you uh, to uh, to have a discussion with us about uh, risk and more specific, actually, risks to the business, right? Who owns a risk? We were talking about the, who owns the risk of not being compliant to a standard. And I think it's really what role does the security team play in cyber risk management? What are the, what are the roles and responsibilities and where are those divisions? And hopefully you can, you can bring us some... Uh, Real world perspectives, Bill. We're uh, sitting in our in our towers a little bit distance from this is sort of more consultancy. So anything you can add would be useful. Do you want to start us off? I guess on risk ownership, as as Maurice said. Yeah, that's a that's a good one. Um, it's something that we've been working through for a while, still working on. If you go back in time, maybe five years ago and before that. It was it was kind of like IT people. You're responsible for security, so not even maybe not even an explicit security person, and and it's really changed a bit with the the culture. There are some things in our organization that have changed it as well. We we were part of a, a Vanderbilt University Medical Center, um, the Vanderbilt University part as a university 
there's this idea of freedom of expression and freedom of the the mission there really is to innovate and do anything that you can think of to innovate and and so locking that environment down is let's just say it's a difficult challenge and as we you know the university and medical center separated we were really able to the executive leadership to their their credit has really taken steps to make a shift in cybersecurity who owns it and part of this involves you need a cybersecurity program or information security program and you know we have a chief information security officer we have teams that do risk assessments we have teams that do vulnerability scans and so on and so forth but at the end of the day we're assessing something pointing out vulnerabilities and based on what they've told us said this seems like it would be important to you because it's the impact would affect something that's that seems to be valuable to you based on what you've told us. You say you're reporting back there. So does that mean in, in your environment, the CISO doesn't own those risks? Well, that's in the mindset of most of the business. If, if you said who owns the risk, they probably would say the CISO owns it. That's sort of the kind of at the business level, the, the people who say, I want to I want to get the system. I want to use this IT. I need an MRI machine. And they say, well, I'm putting it on the medical center network. So I'm not responsible for securing this. If something happens to it, that's the networking guy's problem or that cybersecurity's problem. We've tried to be intentional in our risk assessments is someone wants to get a new MRI. We're, we're looking at it and saying, okay, what IT components are there to this and what, what data is interacting with this or generated by this? And then kind of trying to establish security around that. And then we communicate back to that business owner. Here are the findings that we have. Here are some recommendations that we would like to make. Do you agree or disagree and, and kind of come up with risk treatment plan for those? Or if not, risk acceptance? <laughs> How does the business actually respond to that when you come back with them? I mean, you've, you've implemented this in the process, you say. Correct. Yeah. Are they, are they okay with you intercepting that? Well, so that they, they don't always understand what we're asking them. So we're asking them, we're saying, are you comfortable with one of our findings might be that there's not a clearly defined access management process. Now, let's just be clear. We're, we might be talking about an MRI machine that sits in a procedure room deep in the bowels of you know, the medical center. So we're not talking about a kiosk on Main Street, but it still has a lot of information on it. And it's still, and so we will ask for some access control to be in place or for vulnerability scans to be done on some system. And there, a lot of times, the temptation for them is just to say, yeah, of course, and then walk away and not do anything. Fortunately, we've seen most people are, are very responsive and and actually following up on on these as to how they feel about it i think often they would feel like isn't this your job or isn't this our it's job it sounds but, like there you said your example was a mri system that's deep in the bowels of the hospital i guess the medical center but you've got a very collaborative approach that you've identified an issue during a, a risk assessment and then you're working with the owner of that system however you determine that to fix that problem you're not i guess imposing solutions you're not the final decision maker on, on how you're going to secure that system correct and that falls into the it you know there's it teams that work in all of these and that's part of the collaboration where we've been Let's just say we, we knew there were a few gaps and initially IT would request an MRI and it would get it would get implemented and 
and the IT might accept risks on behalf of the business. Yeah, we don't need to do scans on it. That's that messes the vendor doesn't like that, so we're not going to do scans or oh, access controls. That's not me, that's them. Let's we'll worry about that later. So something might get implemented by IT, which from IT's perspective it meets all of their requirements from a security perspective, maybe they've accepted risks that weren't theirs to accept. And then later on, following up with the business, something might happen and the business might say, we thought you were doing this, or we thought someone else was was worrying about that. And they say, no, that's on you. <laughs> it's your, your clinic, you know. I guess it's not just accepting risks, though. It's any sort of risk treatment. They may have decided that, hey, we've got this device. We found these issues. We're going to restrict access to it. And then all of a sudden, sometime later, you find out that you're not actually getting updates on that device because it's in a segmented network and it can't actually see the updates. If, if you're doing that, you very much need to understand what the business requirements are for those, those devices and those systems to be able to make those decisions of, well, how can I secure this and still enable it to deliver what it needs to d- deliver for the business? And that's a, that's, that's a tricky one if you don't really have a clear a clear picture of who's responsible for what. Yeah, it it really is. And our intake well, form for that process involves a series of questions where we establish the business context. So what is the department? What is the business purpose? What type of information assets? So we have a way to classify information assets as being like it's legal or it's regulatory or it's health information or something like that. We have a business risk classification. So would this impact patient safety or health and safety? Like, would someone die? That's, you know, our top risk. Next is, would it impact privacy? Would it impact uh, reputation? Would it impact compliance? Or would it impact, is it just a purely financial impact? And then when we do our control assessment, we weigh the vulnerabilities against that kind of that business context. So we can say, ah, there's a gap here. It's a privacy of the data or sensitivity of the data. And it would be, we think it would be bad because you're in this department with these business, potential business impacts. But to your point, who is, who answers those questions to us? Who provides that information to us? Because half the time we're kind of piecing it together on behalf of someone. So if you're doing a, just a a network scan, let's say, and you find a, an issue of vulnerability or weakness in a system who's the owner how do you go and find the owner and is i guess is the owner the the system owner the data owner in the context of what we're talking about is it the owner of the business impact of the associated risk uh, is it the person who's going to really feel that that impact and be responsible for that impact in terms of financial in terms of whatever other fallout there is i mean well, i'd be interested in what you guys think but like the you know in a enterprise like what we have there are there are several tiers of ownership just because i am responsible for my department i i kind of am the owner of some of the or maybe maybe i'm accountable for my department does that make me the owner of <laughs> of that those services you know but it, to a certain extent you know my boss you know maybe he's he's the owner and and maybe and, and accountable but maybe his boss is actually the owner <laughs> you know you know what i mean like so there's there's it there's layers of uh, accountability and responsibility that i i think 
from our perspective, we've we've tried to make it as basic as we can that you can't say the CEO is your system owner. Ultimately, he maybe he is. But if you asked, ran into him in the hallway and said, hey, um, how are the vulnerability scans going for, the, for your system there that we approved yeah. last I mean, week? I mean, sure, all, all that yeah. all risk is aggregated and, and ends up on, on his plate, yeah. I guess. Um, but he, you know, he's delegating that risk. I guess the question is, as a data owner, you go to the security team and you know, from previous conversations, I think we've we've started sort of started thinking about this as a you know providing a a service uh, to the business. So you're providing a service to assess those risks. You're providing a service to manage those risks, but you aren't necessarily taking ownership of those risks. What I th- I think you do own potentially is if you put a control in place. That control has its own attack surface. That control has its own potential vulnerabilities. That control potentially can be used to attack other things. And I think you as a security team probably do own that risk. But a lot of the other risk, I think you're you're managing stuff on behalf of somebody else, but ultimately they, they retain ownership of that risk. Yeah, and, and to, to elaborate on this, uh, you're managing something on behalf of somebody else, and that is basically a subset of the risk of that somebody else. That is what you, you support managing. So you have been made responsible within that appetite and within that sub-appetite, so to say, that sub-portion of the appetite, you, you become accountable. Like Martin, you're saying, is uh, uh, the security team may just be accountable for the attack service that sits on the particular specific tool that they are managing to help a stakeholder manage their risks. So there's there's there is indeed a sort of different or layers of risk ownership there. It becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. So the CEO doesn't, of course, doesn't own the the vulnerability scan process. <laughs> um, no, absolutely not. No. Yeah. Well, I, I, I even believe that that he should not should not even be aware of the fact that there's vulnerability scans running inside the organization. Just as does that he can just presume that there's enough toilet paper in 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 the toilets. I think he needs to be aware and. I would say involved in there being a overarching risk management uh, framework, let's say. But that's potentially yeah. at, at that level. That's the same framework. Maybe you're, you've integrated everything, and you're actually using the same sort of conceptual framework for managing your financial risk and your health and safety risk, and and your cyber risk is just another pillar. Exactly. So he needs to be yes. As part of the business governance, is that. He's on top of those activities existing and, I guess, occurring in the in the right sort of timeframes. But yeah, he doesn't need to know the the details of what your your patching strategy is and what day you do your patching and when you would do emergency patching and all that sort of stuff. Well, so I was I was listening back to your earlier conversation. I think it was the one on compliance, and I, I'd actually I, I've done quite a bit on this of. We, we do like to harp on occasionally checklist security. As I've, over the last 12 years, working in an enterprise trying to build a risk management program, one of the things that SABSA has really turned out to be a helpful framework for is that really we're just trying to create the right checklist for us. And we use the business requirements, help us understand there's business drivers of like, well, we need to get patients in and out. We need to make sure that they trust us with their, their data. We need to make sure that the integrity of data is 
between these machines um, that your life is depending on is that it's integrity assured. But we also have to distinguish we have compliance requirements. From my perspective, compliance is just another category of requirement. You have a requirement to be compliant. And if it's, you know, HIPAA compliance, which for us it is, that is that is a direct thing that we must do. Um, it doesn't override any of the other requirements, but it is another requirement. So there are things that we do because if we don't do it, we could be considered non-compliant and it would be bad. But we can use yeah, our risk so, framework to determine the way we do it. Yeah, right, right. So you, what you basically did is first, uh, well, I'm not sure what you did first, but you've, you've created a tailored checklist there that is specific for your environment, your context. Correct. And, and we did leverage, and just the other clarification is that, you know, I, I tried to distinguish between compliance and standards which it's not always easy to do because PCI will call their thing a standard, which it is a standard for PCI, but like NIST to me is a standard. High trust, ISO, those are like, there's something you can choose to follow or not. Someone might ask you to, to follow it as part of their compliance framework. We use NIST and high trust quite a bit as benchmarks to say, make sure that we don't have gaps of like, well, everyone else is doing this. Why aren't we? Do we have a threat there or a vulnerability there? But yeah, it's... Um, In that case, it's just a, a guide to help you ensure that your your risk identif identification is, is as complete as it could be, or at least that you're covering off the, the main risks. The fact that you're talking about compliance there is, is based on the impacts associated with not being compliant. So it's a, it's a risk thing. It's not a ticking the box for the sake of ticking the box or blindly ticking the box because that's going to actually bring you something directly. It's, it's less direct than that, I think. Right. Yeah. And that's what, you know, like those, um, you know, I was mentioning these risk category, business risk categories of our top, our top risk is, is related to health and safety. So let's just say, I, I always say there are worse things than having your identity compromised. Do you like having both of your legs? Yeah, you know? in, your, in your scenario, you've got you've got yeah. loss of life, you've got disability, severe injury, impacts yeah. to and, impacts to health. Right. Yeah. So, and that's that's one of the things that, as a security industry, we struggle with when we're when we're communicating. Like, oh, there's this huge risk, this huge vulnerability that just came out. Everyone's at high risk, and you know, let's do all this really. Let's patch this really quickly. I think the point you guys had been making was often, you know, you, you can go down this list of implementing controls and patching vulnerabilities that could have an impact on the business that you didn't intend. Um, yeah, but a negative in, in, impact. in your in your scenario, you find this this weakness, this vulnerability, maybe it's even a non-compliance issue. You've got to trade that off against is this is this going to risk somebody's life? You can't just patch the patch the system and say, oh, well, cyber is, is my concern. I'm going to patch the system and I'm going to lose sight of the fact that actually that's going to cause some downtime or maybe we haven't tested the patch and there's it's incompatible with some software and something's not going to run and there's an impact to human life in some Absolutely. Sense. So you've got to have a, a joined up view of, of risk because surely we're not saying that the CISO owns health and safety risk. You're right. Yeah. And that's, I think, one of the a key point, you know, for us is we're trying to communicate the ownership of risk and in, in some of the reporting that we're doing just to make it clear, more clear, which type of risk we're talking about when, when something comes up, 
even if you want to do something quickly, there should be the proper events that need to happen should still happen. They just need to happen quickly. It's not that there's this critical vulnerability. We must do this quickly without considering the cost. We must quickly consider the cost and quickly get buy-in from a minimum number of people at proper levels of the organization to say, yeah, do this. So we have a fairly Don't elaborate... Don't you find it... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, so as I was wondering, because um, my experience is there is that if you if something needs to be done quickly or, or not even quickly, um, the challenge is finding the actual risk owner. And that maybe because there's... a Instead of a risk description, we we come up with a control deficiency. Nobody outside IT feels accountable for the controls not being implemented because hey, I pay IT, so just I mean fix this. That's that's what we paid IT to to deliver. But even even so, how do you determine the Im- the actual impact of something that that you're doing? I mean, on an MRI scanner, the patching, right? How do you determine that that could lead to the wrong diagnosis? Yeah, that's and therefore you could miss a tumor or yeah so that is a different you know that that is a different type of quality control than cybersecurity. you know that's why you know the fda has the certification processes and validation processes for medical equipment okay and so and, and that's what makes patching fda com- compliant systems difficult is that they go through this validation process. It's better if you don't have to change it after that. <laughs> you know, they, they, you know, it's, it's like, uh, you know, if, if you, you go through this whole validation process and then you change, you know, the second step or some key component, now you might have to revalidate. So that this is something that for the past several years has actually been getting better because for the longest time you might have, I mean, so we keep these devices for a while. Um, some of them ten to twenty years. Yeah, quite yeah they're expensive. expensive. Yeah. yeah, and um, we will work with the vendors to. Uh, so a lot of times, like you know, we have a, a policy for patch management. You know, patch within X amount of days of you know certain things, um, based on the severity of the patch and things like that. But for these devices, we have you know we do have an ex- an exemption management process or exception management process, whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. you know, for these devices, there are compensating controls that we can have in place and say, okay, this is on this protected network. And in this protected space, it's not as protected against this virus or malware or whatever as, as we may like, but it is the risk that we have to take to operate this with the the desired level of integrity that we need. So, So, I mean, I I, I can see a clear conflict there you know you've got the the cyber security compliance view let's say of well we've got to patch the system that's that's running this application and you've got the the health view that's coming from well our our, our scanner's got to be fda approved at all times so we've got that compliance there by the sounds of things and i'm not going to argue with it the compliance you know the sort of fda compliance and the compliance of that that system operating trumps your, your cybersecurity compliance of well we've applied all the all the windows patches and and we're good on that who's making those calls where where is the that's sort of a, an intersection yeah, of, of various different sort of risk actually... domains and and somebody's got to be making that so where is where's that policy authority 
and and that's sort of going back to a I guess a SABSA concept as well of policy authority. Yeah, but and I, I was sort of wondering the same there. Um, if I'd be the subject that needs to undergo a scan, I am an owner of a risk there. There's impact on me. Uh, of course, I'm represented as a group of patients, right? But who is the representative of that group? So who can basically say? then I, I will manage this risk. In that regard, it's the person who's responsible when you see the hospital, isn't it? <laughs> or legal department, yeah. Well, so I think there is, I, I hear what you're saying, and that's that. there is this, nat, this conflict between we ask the vendor to patch something and they say, no, we can't, the FDA won't allow it. So the FDA has taken some steps over the past few years to say, hey, we're not an ex- we're not in a valid excuse for poor security practices. And so they have they have taken some steps in that regard to just make it clear that if I'm asking some vendor for something, they can't just they need to have some plan. And and that's sort of where when you talk about who owns the risk of a faulty MRI scan. Who is accountable for that, I think, is what you were saying yeah. or asking. Yeah. yeah. In general, we would look at that as, so each, there are different departments that use MRIs. Uh, there's just, actually, it's surprising. I think every week for the last, I don't know how many months, we're reviewing a new MRI. It's crazy. <laughs> we have a lot of MRIs, but um, there are a lot of varieties. So for each clinic, you know, or they're making a cluster of it. I know. So for each, but for each clinic, they might have one or two for different uses, and you know it's on them to follow the practices. Um, but it's kind of like there's business, then there's some there's a kind of IT type support for this device. Uh, it could be the vendor, it could be on premise or some mixture. Uh, we do have some specialty IT groups in our in our organization as well but then our job is to do risk assessments on those and make sure that where possible our standards are met and if they're not met that we can document why that if the vendor says this will cause integrity you know if you run a scan on this a vulnerability scan on it while somebody's getting an mri don't do that you <laughs> know so so do we need to have special there are ways to document what we're doing and then the approval of that is generally the that's what I was describing earlier is this business approvals process where they agree to risk mitigations or risk acceptance. And so in our context, there is someone in the department who's purchasing the MRI who is responsible for that operating correctly. They would also be responsible for it being compliant with FDA or whatever else they may be subject yeah. to. So in the, in that regard, you are acting as an advisor on. A subject matter expert saying this is my advice is that you put these controls in place to protect this and these are the risks and these are the potential impacts but that decision is made by the business not by the the security team that's what we're trying to implement and like i was saying it's my in my experience they're all really smart people <laughs> um very capable and and they really do care about the security but they're also a lot of times not trained for that. As we've experienced, words can mean different things. The same word can mean different things in different contexts. So that's part of the process that we're going through right now is we can't just say, here, let me know if you accept these risks or if you agree to these things. We kind of got to have a conversation and say, here are the things that we identified and this is what we think it means to you. 
I think I, it's I did. It, it's even more complicated that you know you may you may have somebody within the medical center let's let's say who is responsible for providing that MRI service and then they essentially outsource that to to another group to maybe they're involved in the procurement and the selection and then they say hey I need you to manage the operation of this system for me and maybe that 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 second party is actually seen as the the owner of the system but they're not the owner of at a high level of the service and although they may own the asset I think they potentially don't own the the impact of the risk they're still not the, the system owner the you know the people who actually own the own and operate the asset don't actually own that risk uh, they're providing that management to a, to another party who maybe does so you know who who sets the policy who owns owns the risk I think would probably agree that ideally they should be the same person the person who decides what happens is is the same person who ultimately owns the impact of it going wrong that's a given to me i mean you, you can't you can't make a decision on something which you don't own the impact yeah the point the point i was making was you may not actually own the asset but you do own the impact and so so yes, you should yes. own that 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 decision and maybe you can delegate that based on some some guidance to to somebody who's operating it on your behalf but ultimately you're you're the owner for that and accountable for that. Right. So as the owner of the impact, you give them guidance on what they should prevent happening for the person who is owning the asset. And he or she must do everything within his ability to avoid that impact on you. But every action you take has got potential uh, consequences on, <laughs> you know, every action you take to mitigate one risk is going to affect another risk or it's going to affect an opportunity that you're now not um, enabling as of much course. as you were before. Uh, that's what we call the systemic relations there, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and we see that quite a bit. There are, I think in any, we have an electronic medical record system that gets used by everyone or most most of our depart- clinics and departments, hospitals, and each of those areas has someone who is responsible or accountable for that department and you could say is the owner of that department whether it's a clinic or the adult hospital or children's hospital but we have one electronic medical record system that supports them all and so decisions around that system they don't always get a say on there is a major change coming up there aren't 300 approvals that go around (laughs) for each each stakeholder who is accountable for their own risk as it relates to the use of that system, they are mandated to use that system by our executive leadership who has appointed people, delegates, to manage that risk on their behalf. So that's one one way we've dealt with that is there's several core IT groups, clinical IT and infrastructure IT and cybersecurity. We kind of work as a team to for a lot of these enterprise facing components to essentially manage that risk on their behalf and then when and there are issues like you're that's saying that's how it should be yeah yeah so basically you have 300 policies and for each of the policies the it just confirms that the change doesn't conflict with that policy of the 300 stakeholders so you don't need an approval every time again you just need to do the check is the tool after the update still running as the customers, the, uh, the 300 people, is it still doing what it's supposed to be doing? Or do we have to inform a certain group of people and say, oh, by the way, as, as, as of now, 
mm-hmm. you can't see any records anymore or uh, <laughs> only well, 50% of it or and, and it's, whatever, whatever changed there. There is an amazing it's, number. It's red of, now instead of green. <laughs> right. There's an amazing number of governance groups that we have for the different aspects. So like if you're making a change that impacts the way we communicate to patients, for example, there is a group that right. would need to evaluate that and say, yeah, this is in line with what we want to do, or no, this is not, we can't do that. Not like that. Yeah, and that, um, that makes perfect so, sense. You know, you've got all those different groups. There is no way you you sensibly want to have a different policy and a different control set for each one of those. You want to have some standardization across across the enterprise. You don't want to be doing 300 different ways of doing privacy uh, enhanced confidential messaging with patients <laughs> and do it differently for every department. They There's all have the same requirements or, or very similar requirements maybe. No, I wasn't saying that you, you need to have 300 separate so and it may have sounded that like okay, it may have sounded like <laughs> that, but of course if you have 3 <laughs> if you have 300 customers there's probably going to be overlap of what they all those customers want to have. They all want a certain level of privacy or availability or et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So at that point, you now have a customer communications platform. Do you own the risks to that as you are providing that as a requirement to different departments across the business who all have their private confidential communication requirements? You provide a platform for them all to use do you own the risks to that platform that that platform introduces to the business they can't all own a own a slice of it can they that doesn't make sense so does the security team own that risk for the the platforms i was talking about where they're like the electronic medical record is that what you mean yeah yeah um yeah well that's where i was saying saying that we have the the governance of that is up a couple levels from like an mri so we're in MRI, we, we probably have a broad approach, but then the, the responsibility for that particular MRI is the departments. Um, for these enterprise systems, there is a sort of different structure for building and managing those systems. And cybersecurity is responsible for, I don't, I don't know that we own the risk there. We just have a different business stakeholder who's higher up in the enterprise so we have chief of staff or you, you just keep going up until you've got one person yeah if you go up enough there's there's one but below the one there's three or four and and that's sort of the level that those approvals operate because they're and obviously there's smaller decisions that can be made without requiring you know executive approval but there is business ownership of those of those risks cybersecurity does not we we do not do things to clinical systems without approval <laughs> with without proper approvals you know so you don't reboot them whenever you like them <laughs> well that's one thing i was going to mention is that you know my my team focuses a lot on enterprise security architecture risk assessments compliance assessments there are other there's an, a couple other groups that focus on business information security, appliance, disaster recovery, and then and an operations team that does does the vulnerability scans, manages the firewalls, all of those types of things. Also a group that does identity and access controls. But so we have other operational components in cybersecurity where there are enforcements in place. 
So what do we do when we find when we find a system that has WannaCry? <laughs> do we turn it off? Who can who can give us the authority to turn it off? And that's that's what that team deals with. And, and that's where you were getting at is is we need a, a policy and and there is a and a process for step one is identifying that you have a problem, right? And then uh in uh in admitting it. And then um step two is is to deal with it. Um and that's where they there's I know that they're constantly struggling with that aspect of it of because you say who who's responsible for that system? Who owns the risk for that system? And then turning that off might interrupt a specific department. Allowing it to run as it is might impact 300 departments. And who's the person who makes that call? But that does trickle up to that same body who, you know, that enterprise level that we were talking about. It's that same authority where we would, as it is today at least, we would have to escalate that type of um, incident to the, the proper executives. I think from what you said there, it, it's clear that in your environment, at least, you don't see the security team as being omnipotent, at least when it comes to um, you know cybersecurity issues. You you don't have a free hand to to do whatever you want, whatever you th- thinks best. And I think we are, we're all aware of you know some businesses and some teams that that feel they do have that power. So I, I would I would suggest that having let that go, having realized that <laughs> you know you are providing a service to the business, pretty much the first the first thing you need to do is engagement with the business and actually getting them on on your side and getting those 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 relationships built so you can have those meaningful conversations and you can have conversations about what the the pros and cons are of whatever course of action you're you're proposing and you don't have the well this is the way we've got to do it or the I don't care what the business wants to do that's crazy you can't do that you know you're you're not in the security says no scenario there at all right well um i think if you ask the people who have to go through our risk assessment process they will probably disagree with that <laughs> <laughs> so you know i i think the the idea that we're you know we have this thing of let's let's not make security the department of of no right you know that's that's where at the end of the day there are there are processes that we have to implement and if we don't follow them then there are then they it puts us outside of a risk appetite the the deal is having the risk appetite defined i think to your point maurice that there is a, a documented policy that we don't have to ask every time like is this okay or not when you come across things that aren't in line with what our risk appetite is or people aren't going through the process to even establish the level of risk, those are required steps. Yeah, I agree. And I actually think that we could have a whole different discussion about setting the risk levels there, the risk appetites and the thresholds. Mm-hmm. What do you say, Martin? Uh, you know, I'm always willing to talk about risk appetite. Been there, done that many times. So yeah, bring it on. I think we're going to have to draw to a, a close here today, though. I think from what we've talked about, it's important to understand uh, that the risks aren't aren't simple they're they're complex they very rarely uh constrain themselves to to one field one department anything you do is is potentially going to have knock-ons in other areas you want to involve the the risk owner uh, we talked about the the asset owner versus the risk owner 
and who owns the the liability or the, maybe the business impact but it's not it's not simple to work out who those risk owners are i agree with that uh summary and i, I did want to say thanks for including me in this uh this was enjoyable i love talking about risk ownership and all these <laughs> things and, and enjoy your podcast so far so keep it keep going on guys oh that's great thanks bill yeah it was good to have you my pleasure thank you for listening we hope you found it interesting and useful please leave a comment and consider subscribing so you don't miss future episodes let us know if you found the third perspective direct from the coalface interesting and if we should look to do that more often in the future we'll be back soon until then stay safe out there